Podcast B-Sides, episode 82, H.P. Lovecraft's Mad Jibs. Every year in August during H.P. Lovecraft Month on the Drabblecast, we do a little thing we used to call H.P. Lovecraft's Jibbering Maddening Mad Libs, now shortened just to Mad Jibs, where we select a piece of Lovecraft prose or an excerpt of a short story and turn it into a fun Mad Lib game with the Drabblecast community. We tweet out and message on Facebook, asking our audience for things like a particularly Icarus adverb that isn't Icarus and isn't a real word at all. They wind up being lots of fun because half the time they wind up making the story no less purple, weird, and esoteric than it started out. Anyways, for you, our Drabblecast B-Side subscribers, we have compiled and trimmed out each year's various Madjib segments, and we present them to you here now in curated fashion. We appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoy. H.P. Lovecraft's inane, inconceivable, maddening madness. Brought to you by Subway. Eat fresh. Oh, and before I start, quick note. The first half of the first sentence of this Mad Lib hasn't been touched at all. That's original Lovecraft, baby. And that's why this is awesome. The shapeless albino daughter and oddly bearded grandson stood by the bedside, whilst from the potatoid abyss overhead there came a phlegmatic suggestion of rhythmical surging or lapping as made by larval owls and their frenetic roombas on some distant craptacular beach. The decidedly Susian doctor present was chiefly disturbed by the seemingly limitless schmurgle hump of whipper-wallabies crying their mist a phantasmic message in sneeze-alicious repetition timed onomatopediatically alongside the pants of the dying man. It was uncanny, unnatural, persnickety, even. Too much, thought Dr. Aloysius Snuffleupagus, like the whole of this region that he had entered so reluctantly before, in response to the strange butt noises reported as of late. Towards one o'clock, old Waitley gained consciousness and interrupted his coitus to choke out a few words to his grandson. More mimes, Willie. More mimes are coming soon. Yeah, she grows. But that strange old mime downstairs, she grows a faster. It'll be ready to serve you soon, boy. Open up the gates. Open the gates to Yogg, sawed off by use of the Oxford comma, boy. You'll find examples on page 751 of the McGiggles edition of What's-Her-Faces thingy. And then, boy, put that old pangolin to rest. Fire from earth. Can't burn it nohow anyways. Obviously, quite ovulating, old Waitley paused, during which the flocks of armadilla die day outside adjusted their cries to the altered tempo of the antebellum yodeling of the brain-eating Nandi bear from afar. Feed it hot, 
dogs, Willie, and mind the quantity, but don't let it grow too fast for the place, for if it bursts quarters or gets out afore ye open the mystic gates of Yark Earth, it'll all be over and no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them, Willie, the old uns that wants to come back. The old man made a signal to the bitchin' half-seen flute player in the darkness, whereupon the player changed its pseudo-Shatnerian drone to a scarce ovarian snort, precipitating as it did then to a horror unthinkable and wholly unconstitutional. At this horror, I sank nearly to the Pinocchian earth, transfixed with a dread not of this world, nor any other noun, but only of the mad Shermanian spaces between the stars. Out of the untesticular blackness, beyond the sphincterial glare of that pointy softness, out of the mutant ninja Tertorian leagues throughout which those oily teens rolled, uncanny, unheard, uncuckable, underwear and unsuspecting, there flopped rhythmically a bevy of tame, winged Gorbachevs that no rotten freshness could ever wholly grasp. They were not altogether ravens, nor moles, nor buzzards or bare-bottomed carp, nor ants or vampire bats or decomposed dachshunds, nor demon, butter pig, or abominable crow man, but something I cannot and must not recall. They flopped limply along, half with their webbed feet and half with their navel fluffian wings, and as they reached the throng of historical reenactors, the cowled figures seized and mounted them and rode off one by one along the reaches of those dim, unlighted posies. The old, spinning woman had gone with the throng, but the old man remained only because I'd refused to seize a rank of lobstrominous fruit golem and ride off like the rest. I saw when I staggered to my feet that the buttery flugelhorn player had rolled out of sight, but that two of the beasts were patiently waiting nearby in downward-facing dog positions, as if left lost and beseeching outside of a broken phone booth with money still desperately in hand. As I hung back, the old man produced his cordless umbilical cord, a Stygian stylus, and his previous gen past warranty tablet, and wrote of these findings. That he alone was the true deputy of my forefathers, who had founded such impossibly elbowed, yuletide worship in this ancient of places, for a being known only to some in our tongue as Shaq Thulu was inconceivable 
He wrote of all this in rare and ancient retractable Lego hand, which few else can decipher, and when I still hesitated to go on, he pulled from his loose robe none other than Rasputin himself's great nieces herself's beautiful fat Brigé egg, and a watch both of which bore my family arms to prove what the old man said was true. But it was a hideous proof, nonetheless, because I knew at that moment from the manuscripts I'd researched late at night by faint under-violet light that ornate and finely decorated Fabergé egg once meant to enrich the Yuletide season had been cursed and long ago buried along with my great, 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 largely mediocre grandfather in the year of our Lord, 1698. I turned to the bulky, closely written letter itself, and for the next three hours was immersed in a gulf of unutterable horror. Whereas before Akeley had given a few bitchin' outlines, he now entered in minute detail, presenting long transcripts of accursed Pomeranians overheard in the woods at night, long accounts of swarthy, pseudo-Shatnerian forms spied in thickets at twilights on the hills, and a terrible cosmic narrative derived from the application of profound and zesty scholarship. I found myself faced by names and terms that I had heard elsewhere in the most hideous of dominatrix basements. Yagoth, Great Cthulhu, Atrak, the level 12 robot monk battlefinch, Yog Sothoth, Rilie, Argbasnork, Hyperfrance, Nyarlathotep, Azathoth, Republicans, the Lake of Holly, the Jersey Shore, Beth Mora, the Yellow Sign, Lemur Cthulhu's Dianetics, Hamdingers, and the Magnum Tub Thumpinandum and was drawn back through nameless eons and inconceivable dimensions to worlds of elder, outer entity just above and to the left. Worlds of which the crazed and gibbering author of Goodnight Moon could have only guessed in the vaguest of ways. To visit... Houston would drive any weak man mad. Yet I am going there. The black rivers of gross domestic product that flow under those cyclopean, dilf-laden dollhouses were made by some eldritch race of moose now extinct and long forgotten before the Batman came to Danville, Kentucky from the ultimate voids. It ought to be enough to make any man a veritable Dante, Poe, or Glenn Danzig, if he can keep sane long enough to tell what he's seen. But remember, that dark world of fungoid koalas and their mittens isn't really terrible. It is only to us that it would seem so. 
They have been inside the earth. Oh yes, there are openings which human beings know nothing of. Some of them in these very Vermont Zaxby's franchises. And there are lasagna-haunted worlds of dark Lilliputian life down there. Marmalade redolent Kinyanyen, child inappropriate Yoth, and black lightless Patuxatani. It is there that Oreos came from, and cursed Wiffleballs. The amorphous, snooky-shaped penguin creatures mentioned in the Narcotic Manuscripts and the ancient Mila Kunis Arcanum, and the Camorium Myth Cycle preserved by the Atlantean High Priest, Tony Morrison. But we will talk of all this later. When Randolph Carter was 30, he lost the key to the Gate of Dreams. Prior to that time, he had made up for the prosaic, achy breakiness of life quite consistently with nightly bouts of shambling shadow haberdashery that stretched endlessly across the strange and ancient plains of both space and Cleveland and time. Where the blasphemous moose mumbles, the blasphemous, and the lovely, unbelievable chorus of woodchucks chant eternal across farty, miasmal seas. But as middle age hardened upon Carter, he began to feel these Icarus, hamster-derived solutions slipping away little by little, until at last he was cut off altogether, his thoughts no longer assailed by the slouching, muppet, mongrel half-breeds and their accursed subterranean mounds. No more could his galley sail the swift, Stygian corridors of Shit Creek, past the great gilded halls of the Hall Monitor King, through the seedy rest-stop bathrooms of Towering Thon. No more could his squamous clowder of cats tramp through the perfumed jungles of Charlie's Chocolate Starfish Factory, where forgotten palaces, with their veined and ivory dangly bits, sleep lovely, unbroken, and eternal, under the Pale gibbous table. So Carter tried to do as others did. He pretended that the common events and emotions of earthly minds were more important than the fantasies of sugar-dusted polar bears from beyond, of ancient sunken mausoleums and rare and delicate sets of steak knives that few men encounter but in the most restless of radaminthine visions. He did not dissent when they told him that the animal pain of a wheezing aardvark or a hapless menstruating plowman in real life is far greater than the peerless ovarian beauty of long-forgotten downtown pound town with its hundred carven gates and its shunned half-buried donut shops. Yet Carter dimly remembered them still in his fevered and wettest of dreams. (laughs) 